Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the National Entrepreneurship Colonist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Ladies and gentlemen, entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Warren Coughlin, a Toronto-based business coach at warrencoughlin.com. Warren helps principled entrepreneurs build a business that matters. And that is a business that delivers to you, the owner, a fulfilling lifestyle, while also creating positive impacts on customers, teams, and the larger community, always guided by deeply held values. In other words, it's one that helps make the world, or just your little corner of it, a better place. Warren is also a recovering lawyer, a serial entrepreneur, college professor, actor, theater director, and dad to a wonderful daughter who constantly challenges him to be a better person. Warren, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to talk to you, Rick. Delighted to have you here. Now, just before we get started, what we like to do here at the Startup Canada podcast is ensure that our entrepreneurial listeners who guard their time jealously are going to get something out of this podcast if they stick with us to the end. So what are the top pieces of advice, Warren Cogden, that you'd like entrepreneurs to take away from this conversation today? Well, I'd like I'd like to convince people to move from reactive mode into being strategic thinkers. You know, despite the fact that there's a pandemic out there, there's there's actually a lot of things in people's control. And then as part of that is to look at the real problems and opportunities and not just the symptoms. Too many people get sucked in by the symptoms. And that means being willing to dig deep and keep asking the why question. Uh, and from there, actually build a plan. Stop playing whack-a-mole, trying to address everything at once and figure out what's most important and focus on that. And then finally, to understand that planning isn't enough, but how to execute the plan. Because that means creating accountabilities for you and the rest of the team and ensures that the most important things actually get done. So if we can if we can convince people of that, this will be a successful conversation. That's the sort of thing that people, you know, we'd like to think we don't need to be convinced of it, but I think we have to be convinced to do it, right? I mean, the, build a plan, execute a plan, doing both of those things is hard work. 
Well, it is. And it's often because there's things that come up in the middle of it, right? So let me, let me give you, a, if I can, just a really quick example of this. And it's, it's just a great example because it's a really sophisticated business that had this. This was about a $65 million business. They had a board of directors, they had an executive team, but they never actually done detailed strategic planning. And when I came in, that's what they hired me to help them do. We built out a really great plan. The owner asked me to sit in on their first executive meeting where they started to implement the plan. And they just wanted me to report in at the end of it. Well, in the meeting at the very beginning, the second in command of the business came in, didn't refer to the plan, hadn't updated the plan, started talking about something not on the plan. <laughs> Everybody got sucked into the conversation and started talking about other things. At the end of the meeting, the owner looked at me and said, so Warren, how did we do? And I said, well, <laughs> as of this moment, your plan is dead. And they all looked at me like I was from another planet. And I said, your second in command changed everything on the plan. Nobody held her to account. Nobody's trying to stick with the plan. As of this moment, you're all free to do whatever you want. And the room got awful quiet. And she wasn't too happy with me. Whoa, but the master owner, class in deflection. <laughs> <laughs> the owner got very, very clear and everyone sort of got it. And they wound up doubling down on their executional elements of it. And they wound up blowing through their sales targets in the next year. But it was really, that conversation really made them see that their habit was to write stuff down, but then to just sort of go off on a tangent. And that's, that's often what happens to entrepreneurs is something new comes up. Um, and so they, they kind of jettison what they talked about. But the skill in planning is to incorporate those things that weren't anticipated and decide whether they're more important or less important. What I always say is a plan is a framework for decision making. Um, and so when it's there, it still governs. It just means how you, how you actually interact with it. What's your experience in terms of working with Canadian entrepreneurs? How many of us actually have a strategic plan sitting in our active file? <laughs> well, so I've been doing this since 2002. I've been, wor I've worked with entrepreneurs from startup up to a hundred million dollars in revenue. And candidly, I haven't met one that's actually got an operational strategic plan broken down into 90 day activities in a really disciplined way. Most people have, you know, components, but they haven't put it all together. And so they're always doing a little bit of what, what I referred to as whack-a-mole. Right. So, so why is that? I mean, I always compared business planning to flossing. Everyone knows they should do it, but you know, it's just awkward and, and, and stuff and it doesn't get done. Um, <laughs> well, why doesn't strategic planning get done? For a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I think it gets confused with business planning and they think of a business plan as that big fat document they have to provide to a bank or an investor. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking, when I talk about a strategic plan, I'm talking about something very um, distilled down that just lays out the specific activities that you're going to uh, pursue over that given quarter. So one of the, there's that kind of confusion. Second is candidly, just nobody's shown them how, um, it's a skill set like anything else. You know, I, I sort of, I sometimes use the analogy to like a poker game, right? A rookie poker player can beat a pro poker, poker player in any given hand, but a pro player is always going to win the game. <laughs> and strategic planning is like the discipline of the pro poker player. And why poker is an analogy, one of the reasons people don't do strategic planning, one of the reasons I'm seeing it right now during all of the COVID stuff is that because there's a high level of uncertainty, right? There's, you're playing in what I would call a probabilistic world. There's, there's uncertainties out there. And so it feels, it feels like it's a waste of time to do planning because you don't know what's going to happen. 
but that's kind of like in a poker game. There is, there is uncertainty and there's probability in the game. But when you learn how to play the probabilities, you will always increase your chances of success. And so the people who do strategic planning are like the pro poker players. They're in the same uncertain world that everybody else is, but they know how to do it better. So the difference is winning by accident and winning consistently. Yeah, yeah. You can, you know, you can fluke into a good hand, but it's really hard to just consistently outplay somebody who knows what they're doing. And strategic planning is like, you know what you're doing. Because here's the thing. Any, any military commander, any sports coach will tell you that what happens on the field of battle never perfectly reflects what happens on the plan. But they will also tell you that without the plan, they would have got their butts kicked. Right. The, the old line is, and I think some attribute it to Napoleon, that no, or maybe it was the, the Duke of Wellington, one or the other, that no, no, no battle plan ever survived contact with the enemy. But yeah, you need that right. plan to start with. Uh, Mike, Mike Tyson said it too. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> right. Got that too. Yeah. He was a good, <laughs> he was a student of history, I think. Yeah. Before we go further talking about strategic planning, hey, kids, here's a podcast on strategic planning. Uh, let's talk about you a little bit and talk us about your entrepreneurial journey because it's been kind of interesting from lawyer <laughs> to actor to entrepreneur and now a coach. Tell me True. how all that worked out. Well, it's kind of, I won't take you through everything, but it's weird. In my case, it actually, the journey starts at birth because I was supposed to die. I was given zero chance of survival. As it turned out, I was the second person in history to live through this weird congenital defect. They told my folks they were going to do this experimental surgery, but they had no hope. Um, and so when I learned that, it kind of spurred in me a desire to make a difference. So all these different Sorry, when did you learn that? Like years and I years learned later? that in my teen I learned that in my teens. Um, and so, you know, I I, I figured I had to do wow. something with this gift I wasn't supposed to have. So I went into law, you know, pursuit of justice and all that kind of stuff, maybe go into politics, but I found I didn't really like arguing all the time. <laughs> uh, I became an actor, theater director, the transformative power of art and all that. I was a college professor, molding young minds. And then I found entrepreneurship, and that's kind of what did it for me. I, I really authentically believe that entrepreneurship is one of the most powerful forces for positive social change. So I became a co-founder of a new media strategy consulting firm, sold my interest after navigating through the dot-bust area. And then I was looking for the next thing to do, and this was back in 2002. I'd never even heard of business coaching. And a family friend in Calgary was doing it. And I went, that sounds interesting. I looked into it and got more excited and dove in. I wound up becoming the top coach in Canada with for six years with the world's largest business coaching company. And then I headed out on my own to focus on entrepreneurs who, as you mentioned, want to build a business that matters. So that's the that's the Reader's Digest version of the of the journey. But it really, it all kind of reflects this, I guess, a personal philosophy that my purpose, I guess, is inspiring entrepreneurial leaders to become models of moral congruency and consistency so they embrace their pivotal roles in helping shape a society that works for all. But it's hard for them to do that if they're just trying to make payroll or not work 80 hours a week. So what I try to do is help people build the skills so that they can build the business that gives them the revenue and lifestyle they want, but infuse that with their personal values so they also have the impact that they want to have on the world. So I guess you and I have something in common here because you're the only other person other than me that I've ever heard say that, you know, small business is one of our most possible powerful resources for social change. I mean, that's why I've dedicated most of my career to 
covering and chronicling entrepreneurs and their adventures and trying to help them succeed any way I can because they are bringing the innovation. They are bringing social change. They are empowering themselves and others to, you know, uh, create new ideas, new sources of power and influence, and really change society. Um, is that sort of your anchor position in terms of why you're doing this? 100%. I, you know, if you look, look at our culture, what creates your culture? When you think of the car you drive, an entrepreneur came out of that, the clothes you wear, some entrepreneur designed that, the restaurants you go to, that's, and some entrepreneur did that, the theater that you go and see on the weekend, you know, that's, that's an entrepreneur who put that together. So the, the culture in which we live is created through the entrepreneurial spirit. You know, some of those entrepreneurs become super successful and become, you know, corporate, but then there's other entrepreneurs that come up underneath them. And at a, at a sort of a deeper philosophical level without getting political, I kind of think there's a, there's a void in moral leadership right now. You know, politics is not one that you look to for moral I thought we leadership. got rid of that guy. <laughs> Schools don't, you know, are sort of shy away from it. Faith-based institutions have, don't have as, as strong a sway as they used to. And so people kind of look for guidance through their workplace. And entrepreneurs, I think, have a really, really powerful influence over the people they work for to be, to be role models and the kind of conduct that's acceptable or not acceptable. And when you get an organization that's driven by values, and that's a lot of my clients have done tons of really interesting values work as part of their strategies, the transformative effect it has on everybody in the organization is, is profound. Um, yeah, so I, th this is what drives me every day is I, I believe that entrepreneurship, if we can get entrepreneurs who really embrace that sort of values piece as well as the skills, we can really create a society that everybody wants to be part of. Very cool. I now I want to start picking your brains about how our listeners can improve their chances of success. But first, I want to answer probably the most important question of our time. What is the difference between an advisor, a consultant, and a coach? <laughs> is that the most is that the most important? That is, is the pressing issue that we face. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to answer that theoretically and then practically. All right? So in the theory of coaching is that the answers all reside within the client. And so just by asking questions, you draw out from the person the answers that uh, will help them succeed. So that's true in like life coaching and things like that. Business coaching is consists of all three of those elements. So, cause sometimes I can't draw out of somebody through questions, how to do a cash flow, right? I can't draw out of somebody how to just do sales skills. There's some training and advising. That's a part of that, right? When someone has never developed the system before, there's some consulting that's required to do that, to do that. So pure coaching as in life coaching or executive coaching is that kind of drawing out the truth through questioning. In my view, business coaching is a little bit more all-encompassing. It involves that kind of thing, but that sometimes it involves training, sometimes it involves consulting, sometimes it involves just good old-fashioned kicking in the butt to make sure somebody gets done what they said they're going to get done. And, and how does coaching work for you? Do you have clients that you work with for years and years, or you just come in for specific assignments? Um, for me, it's usually a, it's usually ongoing. I Fortunately for me, I, I actually have one of the longer client retention rates in the industry. My my average relationship is between two and three years. 
Um, and so what tends to happen is people get engaged and because I, because I enter into it through a strategic lens rather than just playing the, like the whack-a-mole, like when I first started as a coach, I would sort of take people at, at, at the level of what the concern they brought to the table. But I found that that became very kind of erratic, not sporadic, but erratic. And so when I started focusing through a strategic lens, it got everybody really clear. And then as the business grows and shifts through the strategies, there's always the next thing to work on. And because they've relied on me, I guess, or I've helped them get there, they want to, they want me to stick around and continue helping them through that. Um, so my retention rate is fairly long because people seem to get the results from it. Fantastic. You once did a session, Warren, on three killer business mistakes. What do you think are the three most common business mistakes made by Canadian entrepreneurs being made by entrepreneurs these days? Oh, put me on the spot to remember an old session. No, you don't uh, have to remember it. I said these days, I, so you can change it up. Uh, well, they're, they're actually still the same. I'd say the, fir <laughs> the first is, is not pursuing education. You know, business is an intellectual sport. And so you have to know the discipline, right? It isn't just pursuing a dream. There's actually, there are skills involved in running a business. You got to learn those skills or learn how to ensure those skills are brought into the business. Um, the second is, is what we talked about at the beginning, lack of planning. People playing whack-a-mole or just pursuing the thing, the shiny object in front of them. You know, I, I had two clients years ago who were both, they were both clinically ADD, um, like medicated and everything. When I went in, they had, a, they had a big sign in their office that said, tinfoil costs us $150 an hour. And what they meant was they, they're prone to pursuing shiny objects. Um, <laughs> and they were, they were awesome. But that was, that's part of it, not having that plan that you stick to. And then third is not having any accountability. If it, you know, one of the reasons that entrepreneurs love it is the freedom they get. One of the challenges that entrepreneurs face is the freedom they get. Because you can do anything you want, there's nobody holding you to, to it, it's really easy to drift off what you should be doing. So having some mechanism of accountability to ensure that you're getting what you want is critically important. So missing any one of those three things is really what drives the results. Other things that people think of as mistakes, like not managing your financials or not having sales skills, they're all subsets of those big three, I think. Right. I think that's a really good list. Uh, and you certainly hit upon the, the, the sort of fatal flaw of entrepreneurship, which is that when you set out to do your own thing, there's a real danger because there's only you, which is why, you know, I, I, I'm a big believer in business partnerships where people hold each other accountable and also in having coaches or advisors or an advisory board. So there's, uh, or, you know, a board of directors when it gets to that uh, stage of maturity where you have someone to keep you accountable, to, to, to make sure you deliver because entrepreneurs have awesome energies, but yeah, the tinfoil is always beckoning. <laughs> and the other part is a lot of people, there's a misunderstanding about entrepreneurship. Most people think entrepreneurs are risk takers and the reality is they're not. What they are is they're optimists. And so when an entrepreneur starts a business, they can't, they can't perceive of their idea failing. So they actually don't perceive the level of risk that is actually inherent in their business. And so when that risk starts to present itself and things get tough and they get kicked in the teeth a couple of times, they actually hunker down and they stop taking as bold moves. And I think that's really important for a startup audience to really understand. You love your idea. You're in love with your idea. You're in love with your business. You can't believe that it'll ever fail. And then when something happens that it just, man, this is hard. 
all of a sudden you want to you want to preserve what you've built rather than really try to grow. And that accountability piece is important to reconnect you to why you started it in the first place and to understand that there are ways of overcoming those obstacles that have presented themselves that you didn't initially anticipate. I love that you're burrowing beneath the surface here and sort of looking at the, the dynamics of entrepreneurship because you're right. If if we actually understood the risks that we're taking on, um, you know, we probably wouldn't be doing it. And I cannot tell you how many entrepreneurs I've talked to, uh, interviewed for stories and everything, and I get to go into a lot of detail with them. That's the, the, the fun of being a business journalist specializing in entrepreneurship. I get to hear the real story. And it's, it's, it's interesting how often you hear that startup story, you hear about all the unexpected problems and challenges, and then you say, well, it was worth it in the end, right? And they say, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, which goes to the whole heart of preparing properly. Don't presume that uh, that, that, a, that a, a chain mail can be made out of ignorance, right? You've got to go into battle armed with what it's really going to take, not with what you might want it. That's take. right. And the interesting thing is your business can be your case study. Like you can basically get an MBA, but in your own business, if you, if you learn the skills and use your business as a way of doing it. When, once, you, once you bump up against a couple of hard times, but you see other people have got through it, the good question to ask is, well, how did they do that? What are the, what are the skills that I lack right now? Or what are the actions that I'm not aware that I could be taking that might get me through this? You know, one of the one of the negative questions is to say, oh, why is this happening to me versus a better question, which is how can I address it and overcome it? And when you can do that, and sometimes that means seeking outside help or it means reading books or going to seminars, whatever it is, but never stop learning. Absolutely. To me, we can, we, there's so much to talk about in business. It's a fertile area for discussion, but in the end, it all comes down to generating revenue. I'm just wondering what your best sales coaching advice is. How can the people listening actually make more money tomorrow than, they, than they're making today? So I almost want to quibble a little bit with the question. Because um, it isn't just sales, it's profitable sales. Okay, but I'm saying let's go for sales first and then... <laughs> We'll, we'll try and manage it, the expenses after that. The, fir the first thing everyone needs is more cash coming in the door. Right. Um, so there's a, so there's a couple of things. I, I still, I would, I would still argue you got to get your cost structure for, I, let me just, again, I'll tell you a quick story. I had a client selling like mad, hired a sales guy, great sales guy, selling like bananas, had to get new equipment, new trucks, hire new people. But here's what happened. This quote, great sales guy was commissioned on sale value, not on margins. He had control over his pricing, so he was discounting. The business was selling like mad, but was almost bankrupt because the margins couldn't cover the overhead. This is the story of my previous life, by the way. I didn't know you were watching. <laughs> so I, I, I agree with you that, you know, sales solves a lot of problems, but it doesn't solve all problems. And point of no, fact, ab absolutely. No, but yeah. it's problem number one. Yeah. So in order to, there's a couple of things. So first is you've got to do diverse lead generation. Most entrepreneurs will do two, maybe three different tactics for lead generation. I use a phrase, I call it 10 and then, which is you should be doing up to 10 different kinds of marketing tactics and then whittle down to those that are working based on appropriate testing and measuring. 
So you want to have a diversified, and the, the analogy is this, if you have a three-legged stool and you knock one leg out, the thing falls over, right? If you have a table with 10 legs, you can knock out four legs and the thing still stands. So you need to have a diversified array of lead generation tactics to bring the sales in. And then secondly, I mean, I, I do long sessions on sales. The, the biggest thing on sales, I believe, is I believe sales is actually, when done well, one of the most honorable professions because sales is nothing more than helping someone solve problems. And if you approach your sales as helping someone solve a problem, they are more likely to do business with you than if you're trying to, quote, land the deal. Um, and that's a mindset shift, but it's, it's picked up by the person you're selling to. Now, there's a whole lot of sales, you know, specific skills within that. If you learn the skills, but then approach the, the sale opportunity through the lens of just really wanting to help this person, you're either going to get the sale or you're going to get referrals from that person in the future. Fantastic. And I totally respect you for challenging the question, because even as I was saying it, I was thinking, if he's any good, he's going to challenge this question. And you did. So, <laughs> so I'm glad you did. But yeah, problem number one is, 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 is getting money in the door. And then after that, problems become a little bit more solvable. If you well, the money in the door piece is, is just the fact you sold doesn't necessarily mean you've got money in the door. You better have a collections procedure. Okay, that too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, you, you, do you have a horror story about that as well? Uh, kind of, yeah. I, I had a client, they had... They had 35% of their revenue tied up in receivables over 90 days, um, which is a big chunk of money. And so they actually wound up spending, they were reluctant at the beginning, but they spent forty dollars to $50,000 to buy or buy, hire an admin assistant whose job was all on collections. Within six months, they had an extra million and a half dollars in the bank. Well, and we, when we say collections, is that someone going around and... And, you know, taking a club and threatening clients or is it no. just, it just no, it's calling just, them up and saying, Hey, yeah, it's just really, you know, Hey, it's a day 25. I see you haven't got the check in yet. Is there anything I can do to help you with that? Can, you know, do you need to wire it over? Can we send somebody over to pick it up for you? You know, is there any, you know, just, just having the conversation. Sometimes it means doing nice things for people, sending them a card when they do pay on time, sending them a gift basket or something, you know, to the, to the payables clerk saying, oh, I really appreciate you getting that there on time. It isn't a one time being a hard nosed person. It's all about building the relationship so that you're the one that those clients want to look after. That's beautiful. And it's, uh, it, it's so simple. You make it sound like it can be a positive thing. So yeah, let's, uh, let, 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 let's get... Get, let's get on those collections, people. It's like the movie Roadhouse. Be nice until it's time to no longer be nice. <laughs> okay, I'll put that on my list to see. <laughs> I, I, do you recommend that as an actor or a director? <laughs> Neither. It's pretty schlocky <laughs> entertainment. But <laughs> okay, we started off talking about planning. And I got to tell you, um, I'm glad you made that distinction between the type of action planning, strategic planning that you're talking about. And business planning. No one wants to do business plans. I don't think most people do business plans. Suggest it to a startup entrepreneur and they say, oh, no, we use the canvas. And then you tell them, well, that's a plan. And they go, oh. Um, <laughs> right. So so tell me just a little bit more. Do you, is, is there a process that you're recommending or is it just sort of an activity that, 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 that can be done in any one of a number of ways? Uh, what is it that you think that companies aren't doing that they should be doing? Okay, so there, yes, there are seven steps, I think, to effective strategic planning. 
Um, and, and this is what I call operational strategic planning, which is different from brand strategy and things like that. So there's the seven steps are this first. And I actually I've written an ebook on this. It's about 30 pages goes into more detail. But here's here's basically what it is. First step is you have to do a SWOT analysis, which means strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. Now, the reality is a lot of people know this, but here's what I discovered. When I ask people to do a SWOT analysis, they come back to me with about 15 items max. By the time I get done with them, there's about 150. And that's what I mean about separating symptoms from problems. So the SWOT analysis has got to be deep. And to help with that, I actually, I actually created a software tool that automates the whole front end of the strategy process. It asks about 300 questions and it automatically populates the SWOT analysis. So you don't actually have to think about it. But that's the first step. Then you have to- Sorry, you mentioned these tools. Is this something available like free or anything? No, it, it, I can't. It's part of what I do with people. Oh, I see. There's, okay. there's steps in it where they need my help. Because um, if they just try to do it on their own, they'll probably trip if they haven't done it before. Um, but the steps you can do on your own absent the tool. It's just I'm just saying make sure you go deep, deep, deep on the SWOT analysis. Right. Okay. Then you have to set really clear goals. And the reason I do goals after SWOT analysis is so that people – don't get too, they don't set their goals too lofty. I mean, I know there's two theories on this. Some people say, you know, do the BHAG, set the big goal. But I know for some people, if, if their brains perceive a goal as unattainable, then they won't try, right? So if you've done a SWOT analysis first, it makes you think about what your goals are. And again, he's simple, here's a simple story about this. I had two guys, they called me in. They said, all we want help with is sales coaching. That's all. We don't need anything else. We just want sales coaching. <laughs> I love it when they come in like that and you think, yeah. we'll see about that. Yeah. And I said, okay. I said, so which of you is responsible for sales? The one guy goes, well, I am. I said, so what are your sales goals? I want to double our revenue. I said, awesome. And who's responsible for production? The other guy was. I said, okay, so what's your factory capacity at right now? About 75%. <laughs> and I just let that sit in the air for a minute. <laughs> you don't see there's a problem here. You're going to double your sales when you've only got 25% more capacity. And that's... It was like they just hadn't thought of it, right? And so doing that analysis then means, okay, so our goals have to be tempered by the constraints that we're facing. Once you set your goal, once you know your goals, then you have to choose a strategic focus. And that's hard. This is, this is where whack-a-mole ends. The thing is, I, I got to say this, but most people, for, most people overestimate what they can do in the short run and underestimate what they can do in the long run. So what they do is they try to pack too much stuff in, they get none of it done and then get discouraged. If you do two things a quarter, you'll have done eight things over the course of a year. You show me five businesses that have made eight significant improvements over the course of a year. It's not that many, right? And it's because they're all trying to do too much at once. So when you choose a strategic focus, then choose a limited number of priorities. Here's just three things that we're going to work on on that. And then underneath that, the next step is then you choose really specific tactics or steps. Then, this is where everyone goes wrong, they never go to this level, you schedule and assign. So these tactics are going to be done during, not just by a certain period, during a certain period. That's an important distinction. When people just put a due date, you know what happens? They leave it until just before the due date and then they panic and it doesn't get done. When you actually schedule when the activity is going to happen, two things are going to happen. You will look and see whether the plan is realistic because you're going to look at it and go, my God, we've got five things going on in the same week. Right. That ain't going to happen. So you got to adjust your plan. Right. And then it also ensures that you, you actually get it done because you know when you're supposed to start as, when, as well as when you're supposed to stop. And then the, the last piece of the seven steps is to actually execute. And that means having 
a sequence of accountability. And the way I suggest doing that is every week you have an accountability meeting that is just on the plan. It isn't a big, long conversation. It's simply, you said you were going to get this done. Is it done? Is it on track or is it delayed? And if it's delayed, do you need help? Yes or no? No? Good. You're going to get back on track. If the answer is yes, yes, what help do you need? Say what it is, get the help. If it's more than that length of conversation, then you go to a problem-solving conversation, which is what needs to be done to get it back on track. When you do it this way, the, the, the plan becomes the boss, and everybody's accountable to the plan. And so there's no, there's no sort of Jim is giving me a hard time or Sarah is giving me a hard It's just we're all together in this exercise of implementing the plan. And when you have a weekly accountability meeting, you're able to make the course corrections to ensure that you actually achieve your outcomes. But if you just sort of, the, where most people go wrong is they confuse goals with plans. And they say, we're going to get to this revenue by the end of the quarter. And we think we're going to do it through, um, you know, Facebook advertising. But that's as far as they go. And so then it gets to be seven, eight weeks into the plan, nine weeks into the plan, nothing has happened. And then they start panicking. And then they give up on planning because, gee, shucks, it doesn't work. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Well, like you say, seven steps, and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's like that's like at least four too many. But yeah, no, you make it look like a process. You make it look very doable when you break it down into those steps. And what it's really about is just dealing with that human element, the ability to be distracted, to procrastinate, to get a little... Um, too focused on one idea or another and, and, and chase things down rabbit holes. And right. so it sounds like your process really keeps pulling people back into what's important, what should we be doing now, uh, and how do we measure it? Well, it's based on what I call iterative thinking. Each, each piece you're going a little deeper. Seven sounds too many. Here's the three-step version. Analyze, plan, and execute. Now you're talking my language. <laughs> <laughs> so if you remember only three things, only one thing from this podcast, analyze, plan, execute. And we yeah. have a seven-step formula for that if you need any help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. The seven steps are SWOT, goals, strategic focus, strategic priorities, specific tactics, schedule and assign, and execute. And you can give all this away because people find that it's really hard to do this without... Um, you know, some outside framework and structure and support? Um, well, I, I don't really have any problem giving it away. There's people who've taken this advice and done it on their own, and that's fine. Um, I guess the difference, I've been doing this since 2002, and one of, the, one of the things, I guess, if I can brag where my secret sauce is, when people do the SWOT analysis and there's 100 items on there, they can get overwhelmed by it. When I look at it, I've been doing it long enough that I, there's what I call pattern recognition, I can kind of, it's like Rorschachy. I can see the pattern in the SWAT. And so usually within 15 minutes, I can pull out like the three dominant themes. And then it's just a conversation about which is going to be the focus. Very cool. Warren, there's an old saying that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. So as someone who probably eats three meals a day and understands strategy, what's the role of culture in startups and small businesses? That's, I love that question. Um, I actually do a ton of work on culture with people. And as I said at the beginning, a lot of the values work I do, it's about creating a culture that produces that. So I know that saying culture eats strategy. I actually think culture and strategy are great. Um, 
it's a great marriage. They're great bedmates or roommates because when they go together, things really start kicking. Because if you develop a strategy that's misaligned with your culture, it's probably going to fail that people aren't going to execute it. And so when you can have a culture of accountability and a culture of high performance, then people will really embrace the strategy. And I actually, in my experience has been, um, this actually in the last year, it's this, this theory has been borne out time and time again, that when the organization starts to get strategically driven, the transformation it has on culture is remarkable. All of a sudden, particularly when the team gets involved in the creation of the strategy, <clears throat> excuse me, um, they start to own it and they care about it and they start holding the owner accountable to it. And all of a sudden they, they start to care. And particularly when that strategy is rooted in kind of a, a vision or a purpose for the business that's bigger than just the revenue, then people start to care. And then this culture becomes one where it isn't up to the owner to ensure everybody does something. You know, I, I lived in Edmonton for, you know, young folks may not remember this, but you and I probably will. I lived in Edmonton during the heyday of the Edmonton Oilers with Gretzky and Messier and all those guys. Good times. And, you know, say there was the coach, Gretzky was the captain, but Messier is who he answered to in the locker room. And what you want to do in a culture is create that kind of feel where people are accountable to each other rather than just to the boss. Because that starts to give the boss more freedom. You as the owner get more freedom because this culture is one that cares so much about the outcomes and cares so much about the strategy and the, and the results associated with it that they'll be innovative. They'll come up with the ideas. They'll create the initiatives that are going to help you succeed. And that's where it becomes super fun. Interesting. This, the, 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 your Messier theory, and I, and, and I buy it totally, it sort of gets into the idea that there's more than one type of leadership. And maybe if an entrepreneur could see that there are other types of leadership within the organization that they can inculcate, that they can try and inspire, that might make their job easier. Oh, way easier. I mean, I always believe one of the primary jobs of leadership is to create other leaders. And when you do that, your job as the owner becomes so much easier. And leadership is not just a formal position. I had a client, it was amazing. They had a summer student and we did a, we actually did a culture development session. And this summer student was by far the strongest leader in the room. Not because of any position, but because he, he took accountability, he took responsibility, he encouraged others, he was a creative thinker, uh, he responded to other people's ideas and tried to guide them. It was, it was really cool. Um, and so the, the strength of the owner in that case was she really facilitated those kinds of open conversations where everyone could feel comfortable so that even the summer student felt he was empowered and permitted to add value. And that's where his leadership uh, skills really emerged. That that's really interesting, and I can actually relate to that at the, the at my second real professional journalism job. Uh, the publisher editor slash editor would have a weekly meeting with all the staff, the 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 callow young rookies like me, and all the senior desk editors, and he'd just tear through the newspaper and he'd trash it and say, "Why is this here? What were we thinking? Why is this headline there?" And it was. It was hard for the the secondary leaders, the, the the desk editors, to accept, but it was so empowering for the rest of us. It oh, it's amazing. remarkable when yeah. that can happen, and when it's rooted in values. A lot of even though I talk I talk about high performance culture, um, 
as part of high performance culture, it's one that's really rooted in values because the values, here's my definition of culture. Culture is the behaviors, the symbols, the signals, and the incentives that reflect the values of the organization. So when you, when you have a values-driven organization, as a, as a side note on this, you'll hear coaches like me talk a lot. And I, I get into arguments with coaches about this sometimes. You know, they hyper um, promote systems. Systemize your business, systemize your business, systemize your business. High performers don't love being constrained by lots of systems. Mm-hmm. And so what can happen is if you over systemize your business, you lose your good people. And it's fine as long as the system works, but as long as there's a bump in the economy, like say a pandemic hits, all of a sudden you've lost a lot of that creative uh, resource. And so I'm kind of more inclined to say, have a sufficient number of systems that the business can run, but base it, in, base it on culture and values. Because if you have a value of safety, let's say, well, you're going to have to have some systems and incentives in place to ensure that that value is preserved, right? I had a client that they, they created three core values, two of one of which was productivity and one of which was safety. And they were a construction company, but guess what? Their incentive for their project managers, the, the project managers were bonused based on hitting production targets, not on hitting safety targets. So you had an incentive in the business that ran contrary to one of your core mm-hmm. values, right? And so when you, when that comes up, then all of a sudden you go, no, no, we gotta, we've got to be aligned with our values. And all of a sudden that immediately impacts your systems, your incentives, your performance management structures, your communication processes, everything starts to shift once you've made that commitment to the values. So I know some people think values and culture is soft. It isn't. And if, can I tell you one other story about culture? It's one of the greatest. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I got a lot of stories. Um, I, I can't swear on the air, but this is, so I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase. This is so, podcasting, swear away. <laughs> so I had a, a client and there were two partners in, in the business and I introduced this idea of culture and one of them was really keen on it. And the other one looks at me and he goes, this is effing bull crap. <laughs> just, you know, just like that. It was like, okay. So the other partner worked on him for a while. About eight months later, we did a cultural initiative, created values the organization grew, almost doubled in revenue from a base of $40 million. Um, they won best place to work in their category five years running. And that guy who called it effing bullcrap, he now says culture is everything. Wow. Okay. Um, one quick question just before we wrap up. Um, we've been talking about you know the importance of planning and you know setting strategic frameworks that guide us to acting intentionally in our marketplace and in our business. But then something like COVID hits. So how can we do something other than just react when we have a problem like COVID? Obviously, the problem is changing all the time. It gets worse. It gets better. Lock up, lock down. Um, So how can entrepreneurs become more positively responsive uh, in such desperately fast changing times as these. So there's a few things to that. One is, you know, pre, so I had a client in the event space who you think they would have got smoked. They've done a massive pivot and have been highly successful because pre this, they did the smart work of preserving their cash flow. So they were in a really strong position to ride out a negative circumstance. So that's one of the things is having 
um, you know, one of my mentors, he, he's rich dad of rich dad, poor dad. Um, the guy, one of the guys Kiyosaki learned stuff from, and he has a post-it note on his computer. And he says, this is one of his primary strategic questions, which is what am I not seeing? So one of the things is always to be looking at the risks. You know, I, I met the, the astronaut Chris Hadfield a number of years ago, mm-hmm. and he's, he's an amazing guy. But he has this saying, he says, people, people like you, like coaches, you like to always say visualize success. He says, you got to visualize failure. You have to anticipate what can go wrong so that you can mitigate against it. And with, and it's not to be negative. It's to say there is a potential negative outcome out there. How can I start moving the pieces on the board now to protect myself against that? So early on in COVID, I had a client who she didn't believe me. She, she, I had the good fortune of being able to participate in some conversations with some epidemiologists and all this kind of stuff. And I, I had a pretty clear view that things were going to go through these waves. Um, and she didn't believe me. And she thought, well, once summer hits and everything's flattened out, everything's going to be fine. And I said, no, it's not going to be fine. There's going to be another wave in the fall and you got to prepare for it. Um, and she wound up, you know, not listening. Yeah. Yeah. So part of it has to be, you know, COVID, COVID is not just, I don't want to minimize it obviously, but it is, it is a risk factor just like there are many risk factors. You know, in, in 2009, people didn't anticipate that all these derivatives were going to lead to a global financial crash. You know, some people did, but not everybody did. There's always every 10 years at a, you know, generally between seven and 10 years, something is going to come along that is going to crater the economy. That's just the cycle. And so you have to, you have to plan for it. You have to build up your cash reserves. You have to know what resources you have. And then when you do the planning there, for sure, there are unknowns. And so you have to plan in the face of the unknowns. If an unknown happens that disrupts the business, what's my, what's my time frame? Do I have three months? Do I have six months to be able to move? And then what resources do I have? And that's a big part of planning. You can't just plan activities. You have to plan the allocation of the resources. Any plan that doesn't allocate resources is going to fail. So, and the only resources you as an entrepreneur have are time, team, and money. And so you have to think about how you're going to use those three resources, both in the face of opportunities. Cause you know, everyone's looking at COVID as a negative. COVID has actually had some amazing opportunities too, for a lot of people. And so are you positioned to take advantage of that? Like right now, for instance, in the landscaping industry, as an example, no one saw this coming, um, that people decided not to take vacations. So they all decided to improve their backyards, huge opportunity. But guess what? One of the risk factors is getting labor. How do you grow in a tight labor market where there aren't good people who know how to move flagstone and and put in pools? And so, you know, thinking about how you're going to get your human resources becomes a strategic question. Same thing in the domain industry, you know, might more closer to some of the people in startup Canada, the domain industry just blew up because everybody started moving their businesses online. And so you, you need to be well positioned to take advantage of new things. Like even in the event industry, right? Like shifting to online virtual events is a huge opportunity. So agility doesn't just happen. I mean, you have to uh, visualize it and, and prepare for it. Essentially, well, in a better, I mean, there are some, sure. Did some people have go into reactive mode as soon as COVID hit for sure? 
you know, I was doing webinars back in April and May about, you know, pivoting and about cash flow management and about supply chain management and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you can have not planned for it and go into reactive mode and pivot, but that's a highly stressful way of doing it, right? <laughs> um, if you can be thinking ahead, you know, like right now, we're, you know, if, if the vaccines work, there's probably going to be some pretty cool economic activity by September. I know some people who are entering into leases for restaurants for the fall. Really? Because Yeah, because they're saying, you know what? Everyone's going to be vaccinated by September. Everybody's going to want to go out after that happens. All of this real estate has been emptied from restaurants that had to close. This is going to be a gold mine. Now, they have to have resources in order to do that. You know, I know, I know people who, because of remote working, are buying real estate further outside the city because they believe that, you know, people are not going to go back to full time at offices, that remote working is going to be here to stay. And if that's the case, you don't have to be close to the center. So there's going to be higher demand for distant real estate. And so buy up the real estate now because the value is going to go up. All right. Warren Coughlin, you have shared a ton of good stuff <laughs> with us today. This is a, this has been really amazing. We, 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 we set out to say, okay, we want to help people get out of reaction mode and and think strategically and i think we've given them a lot of tools for that a lot of uh incentive to do that a lot of reasons to do that um but a lot of other good stuff that uh, you've shared with us that i really appreciate sales is helping people solve problems remember how, how the, the kind of uh, um, mind shift that can create in in clients and prospects um we talked about the seven steps to operational strategic planning and the three steps which are my favorite analyze plan and execute uh, the the business of business is leaders creating leaders i thought was a was a really important point and the power of culture and strategy working together rather than eating each other for breakfast uh, is what builds great companies. So thank you, Warren, for sharing all this. Where can we My find pleasure. you again? Uh, at warrencoglin.com. That's C-O-U-G-H-L-I-N. And on my homepage, you can download the ebook that goes into all this strategy stuff in a lot more detail. Fantastic. Then that's free. Okay, I cut you off there. Sorry, that's an important point. Very, yes, very, very last question. Do you have one more piece of advice, something tactical that our listeners can put into practice in their businesses today? Yeah, it'll, it'll be not so much business skills, but it, it's kind of be true to you. Your, your business is a reflection of who you are. And... So make sure it is that. So live true to your values, lead your people by your values, serve your customers by your values, and you will always attract to yourself the people around you who will make your business an enjoyable place to be. Beautiful. Warren Coughlin, thank you for being the perfect guest. Thank you. We'll talk again. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence. <laughs>